Bob and I have been excited to be in contact with quite a few CIC readers and uh, people who have been affected by the ministry. So in our prayer, we're going to pray for them too as well. Let's uh, open up. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much that we can gather together here in freedom to learn more about who you are objectively through your word. We thank you, Lord, that you are going to crush Satan, that your son is the seed that was promised to come, and that even though Satan wars against him, you will prevail, and you will bring both the king and the kingdom in your timing. I do pray, Heavenly Father, for our people here this morning, that they would persevere, that you'd help this message to be part of that in Bob's sermon. And I pray also for people like Gary and uh, Brenda. Who was the other one, Bob? Nathan. Nathan. Nathan as well, Lord. These are readers who have been learning more about you and building a biblical worldview. And we ask, Heavenly Father, that you would sustain them and lead them to you through your truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning, as you can see, we're going into Revelation chapter 12. And notice the title is, we're going to be looking at Satan's war against God's seed. Now, when I talk about God's seed, of course, I'm talking about the Messiah. But I want to begin by showing you an outline of where we're going to be going. And so I want to begin by showing you that we're in a brand new section in Revelation chapter 12 all the way through Revelation 14, 20. In this section, what we're going to be looking at is the background to the seven bowl judgments. And it's really the way that John says, oh, by the way, this is the history. This is what it's all about. So you're going to see this history that we see in Revelation 12 through 14 is history that goes all the way back to the beginning and all the way to present day, that is, as John was writing. Okay? So there's three sections in Revelation 12 through 14, and they really break down per chapter. Revelation 12 is about Satan's battle against the Messiah, against God's seed. When you get to Revelation chapter 13, you see the main players that Satan is using, namely the beast of the earth and the beast of the sea, that is the Antichrist, the Antichrist and the false prophet. When you get to Revelation chapter 14, you see the doom of anyone who's taken the mark of the beast, but you also see the 144,000, the Jews that are going to be secure and will not compromise with the beast. Then you have the proclamation of the gospel one last time, and the reason that's significant is because right after that, you have the unleashing of the seven bulls, the final bulls of God's wrath. And after that, then, of course, Christ's reign will come. In fact, you'll see the destruction of Babylon, the religious Babylon, chapter 17, followed by the fall of commercial Babylon in chapter 18. Now, remember, Babylon is going to be literal, but it's also symbolic. Why? Because Satan has always been behind Babylon's attempt to usurp what God is doing. So, for example, remember in the book of Isaiah, I think it's in chapter 24. Let me just make sure I'm in the right chapter. Yeah, it's called the, here it's 2410. It's called the city of chaos. Okay, so this is Babylon. Well, the city of chaos, the term there in Hebrew is tohu, which literally means to be formless or void. Remember in Genesis 1-2 that the world was formless. It was in chaos, as it were. Well, Babylon is referred to as the same term. And so there's two cities in contrast in the book of Isaiah. The city of Babylon, the city of chaos, versus the strong city, the city of the New Jerusalem. 
the city of Zion that God will one day bring. And so Babylon is going to be destroyed in the book of Revelation. And lo and behold, what city is going to survive and be raised up? Jerusalem. So Isaiah had been prophesying that for some 700 years. After that, of course, Revelation 19, we see Christ come to set up his kingdom. And then in Revelation chapter 20, we have the millennium, the white throne judgment, followed by the eternal states in Revelations chapter 21 through 22. So that's where we are right now in the, the grand scheme of things. Now, with that, let me begin by talking about this idea of corporate solidarity. How many have ever heard of this concept of corporate solidarity or the one and the many? I know obviously Bob has and Dana and many of you have heard of this in here. Well, let me talk about this because it's very important for us to understand when Satan's attacking the seed. When we talk about the seed, we're talking about a concept of the one and the many. Let me explain. The one, remember in Genesis 3.15, after Adam and Eve had fallen, there was a promise that one day the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. And what's very interesting is that the seed in Hebrew, we know because of the pronoun, has to be a singular man. So there's a singular man who is going to come and crush the serpent. So let's say you were in prison and the only Bible verse you had was Genesis 3.15. You would know this much, that one day a man is going to come and crush the work of the serpent. Now, other than that, you wouldn't know much. But the rest of the Bible unveils who this person is going to be, that he's going to come from the line of Seth, He's going to come from the line of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, David, and sure enough, it's the Messiah. Now, that's the one. Now, notice, though, the seed also has the many. In fact, turn your Bibles, if you will, to Genesis 15, 13. The term for seed, as it's used in the Hebrew Bible, is zerah. That's used in Genesis 3, 15 for the one. As you're turning to Genesis 15, 13, I'm going to show you evidence that zerah is also sometimes used for many. Zerah is what's called a collective noun. Now, all of us know what a collective noun is because of, like, the term deer. That's my favorite example. If you're a hunter, you can shoot one deer or ten deer, but you don't use deers. You just use the deer, right? It's one or many. Zerah functions the same way. Sometimes it's referring to one, but sometimes it can refer to the many. As you clearly see here, in Genesis 15, 13, where it, this is God, remember he's giving the covenant to Abraham. It says, God said to Abram, know for certain that your seed, there's the term Zerah, will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. So notice there, Zerah refers to the many. Now, why is that important? Because when you look at the seed promise, the many, the Israelites, are pregnant with the one. And the one is going to provide salvation for the many. So if the many, the Israelites, are wiped out in Egypt, what happens to the one who was promised to come? You, you lose them. Yeah. And if you lose the one, is he going to be able to provide salvation for the many? No. So if you lose either one, God's promises are all dead. In a sense, that's what the battle is all about. In any good book, there's tension. How many of you have ever watched a movie where you just see an accountant add up numbers. And by the way, I'm not putting down accountants because my dad's one, etc. But it's not real exciting. You don't, and I'm sorry, Eric. Um, by the way, you wouldn't see pilots either for that matter uh, flying in a, 
right? <laughs> the point is, is there always, always has to be tension in a movie, right? Well, there's tension in a good book as well. And we see that in the Bible. The tension is, how is God going to do it? There's a battle against his seed. Satan's trying to wipe it out. And yet God is forever faithful, and he brings the seed about. He's faithful to deliver. And so that's what chapter 12 is about. It's about this battle where Satan is trying to wipe out first the many so he can wipe out the one. Okay, does that make sense? So that's what we're going to be looking at. You lose either one, you lose God's promises. So with that, let's start here in Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. John says this. He says, A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet. And on her head, a crown of 12 stars. And she was with child, and she cried out, being in labor and in pain to give birth. Now, first of all, notice that this great sign certainly means that the woman is not to be taken literally. This is not a woman in the sense of a literal physical woman, but it's a sign that represents something greater. Now, I say that because, for instance, John Paul II obviously the Roman Catholic Pope years ago, he claimed that the woman was in fact Mary. And that ended up being dogma, therefore, for the Roman Catholic Church. Why? Because when the Pope speaks, he speaks sometimes ex cathedra from the seat and therefore it becomes official teaching, and it was. So they believe that, in fact, the woman here is Mary. But clearly it's not. It's a symbol that really is pointing to the nation of Israel. Israel is the woman. Now, how do we know that? Just because I like it to be Israel? No, because John gives us a major clue. We see the clue and notice what's in red. He says, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars. Well, that's a direct allusion to Genesis 37.9. Genesis 37.9, here Joseph is giving his second dream. Remember his first dream, Joseph, one of the the brothers, his other brothers were the other 12 tribes of Israel. Well, Joseph had a dream where the other sheaves, which represented all of the other Israelite brothers, were going to bow down to him. Well, here, notice his second dream. Genesis 37, 9, it says, Now he still had still another dream and related it to his brothers and said, Lo, I have had still another dream, and behold, the sun and the moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. Now, what did his brothers think of his dream? Dreams, plural. They didn't like it so much. <laughs> in fact, they plot to kill him. And I'll show you that that's an attempt by Satan to wipe out Israel. We'll talk a little bit about that later. But notice here clearly, John is alluding back to that. Now, the sun, of course, is Jacob, who is Israel. The moon is Rachel. And the 11 stars, in Joseph's case, would have been the other tribes of Israel. But, of course, John just puts them all together as 12 stars, including Joseph. Is everyone with me? Can you just repeat that? The sun is Jacob? Yeah, I'm sorry. Yep, the, the sun is Jacob, the moon is Rachel, and then the 12 stars would be the 12 tribes of Israel. I think that that's clearly how John is depicting it here from this imagery. And that's what's really neat. Remember the principle we learned in our interpretation of the book of Revelation. Anytime we see a sign, either John specifically tells us what it is or he gives us a direct allusion to the Old Testament where we can know what he's referring to. So we're not left hanging 
saying, well, I think it means this or I think it means that. He tells us what it means. And he does so here by citing the Old Testament. Okay, so clearly Israel here then was pregnant with this child. And notice, in fact, it says being in labor and in pain, she was to give birth. Now, what's very interesting is when it says being in labor, that's the participle form of Odin. Now, Odin was that term that we said referred to the labor pains. Remember, Jesus talks about the labor pains in Matthew 24, 8. In the Olivet Discourse, he says these things are the beginning of labor pains. The Apostle Paul talks about the day of the Lord as being labor pains. He uses the same term, that the day of the Lord comes like a thief in the night while people are saying peace and safety. Sudden destruction comes upon them like Odin, labor pains. So labor pains is a huge motif in the Bible. And what I want to do with you is I want to unpack how do we understand labor pains? Let me explain. Let's understand this because the labor pains helps us understand both the first advent of Christ and also the second advent of Christ. Now, before we talk about labor pains, how many in here remember Jim Palmer, one of our elders? Most of you in here remember him. I hope Jim's listening because I want to cite Jim Palmer. He had a great saying, and his saying was that right now as you and I live as Christians, we're not living during the labor pains but during the discomfort of the pregnancy. He is exactly right. Jim Palmer understood what the labor pains meant. You see, a woman is not in labor pains all nine months of her pregnancy. The nine months of the pregnancy will culminate in labor pains. So the labor pains come before something is birthed. Are you with me? So, for example, in the first advent of Jesus Christ, you had labor pains associated with Israel giving birth. Why? Because it was so painful. Satan is always trying to wipe her out. But sure enough, God was faithful and she gave birth to the Messiah. And that's the reference here in Revelation 12 too. But this labor pains idea then carries forward to the second advent of Jesus Christ where the world and Israel will give birth to the messianic age. Okay, now again, you and I are living during the discomforts of the pregnancy. The 70th week of Daniel, the last seven years, are the labor pains. And that's why the Apostle Paul could say they come suddenly like a thief. You don't know when they're going to come. I like to tell the story when my wife and I were having our child. My wife was pregnant for a long time. It just went on and on and on. (laughs) And one day her water broke. And it was just out of the blue. We were watching Bill Cosby and laughing it up, and all of a sudden our water broke, and it was, he was going to come too early, so I told her to put the water back in. I didn't know how it worked. I thought you could you lose water, you just put it back in, or drink, or whatever you have to do, right? It doesn't work that way. The labor pains began, and it was unbeknownst to us. There was nothing in the sky written. There was no warning. The labor pains came. And so it is with the 70th week of Daniel. The church is raptured. The labor pains come. After the labor pains, the seven years, the messianic age is birthed, and he will reign forever and ever. That's the imagery that we see. In fact, notice all these passages that I have listed here. Isaiah 13.8. I think, by the way, Isaiah 13.8, in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the term Odin, labor pains, is used with reference to the day of the Lord. Okay, that's what Jesus is building on in Matthew 24.8. Now, notice the reference here to 1 Thessalonians 5.3. Paul, in his understanding of eschatology, he's taking it right from Jesus. 
In fact, I showed in one of my messages that he borrows like eight or nine terms right from the Olivet Discourse. So all of them use labor pains for this concept of the last seven years that occur prior to the Messianic age. In fact, let me give you a quote here from Jeremiah 30. I'll give you verse 3 and verse 6 through 7. Now, remember, Jeremiah 30 and 31 have to do with the restoration of Israel. How do we know that? Well, notice here in Jeremiah 30, verse 3, God says, For behold, days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and Judah. Yahweh says, I will also bring them back to the land that I gave to their forefathers. Okay, so stop there. That's verse 3. I'm just showing you that. Now, when is God going to restore the people to Israel? That's in the future. He's never done that. He's never restored their blessings. They've never come to Messianic salvation. So that's still going to come. So that's the setting. Now, notice in verse 6, he asks the question, ask now, and see if a male can give birth. Now, stop there. Can a male give birth? The answer is no. But what he's describing is something painful. He says, why do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in childbirth? Stop there. Here's the labor pains or childbirth motif. The time period that's being described in Jeremiah is so painful that it's as if men are going through the childbirthing process. And you ladies know that if men had to go through the childbirthing process, the we wouldn't have any people left. We, yeah, the birth rate would fall below zero. <laughs> exactly. We wouldn't have any children. So it's really bad. That's what, that's what Jeremiah is telling us here. He says, and why have all the faces turned pale? Alas, he says, for that day is great. Now, how many times do we hear that day and that day and that day? What's it referring to? The future day of the Lord. That day is great. There is none like it. Stop there. What does Jesus say in the Olivet Discourse? Had those days not been cut short, no flesh would survive. Jesus in his Olivet Discourse was describing a time period that was so bad, none could compare to it. He was referring to the future 70th week of Daniel. Therefore, Jeremiah is referring to it as well. Why? There's none like it. There's none that's this bad. And he says, and it is the time of Jacob's distress. Aha, Jacob's distress. But notice, he will be saved from it. That's the great promise that God will protect the seed. So the time of Jacob's distress is what we see in the 70th week of Daniel, and in particular, the last three and a half years where the Antichrist tries to wipe out the promise that God would remain or keep a remnant that remains in Israel. He's going to try to wipe that out. But notice the promise, he will be saved from it. Yeah, Eric. Uh, uh, Yeah, I have a question. Uh, on the uh, where the Lord says, "I will also bring them back to the land that I gave to their forefathers." Yeah. Of course, you know uh, Israel is a nation once again, and a yeah. lot of Jewish people are back there. But it's, right. it's not all of the territory, and not all of the Jews are back there. So, could you clarify that? In other words, I, I could see how some people would yeah. say that that's already been fulfilled. Absolutely, and you're right. You make a good point, Eric. If you look at the dimensions of what Israel is supposed to encompass in Genesis 13. When he lays out the boundary, it's supposed to go all the way to the Euphrates. Well, certainly they're not in that, those boundaries, so that can't apply here. Second, they're not being covenantly faithful to Yahweh by trusting in Messiah. And that's the big idea, because when you get to chapter 31 of Jeremiah, 
he says he's going to give them a new heart. In fact, Jeremiah 31, 31 is really the promise of the new covenant. And originally it's applied to Israel. Now, God knows he's going to graft in the Gentiles first, but they're also going to be recipients, that is the Israelites, of the new covenant where they're going to be regenerated and able to believe in Messiah. So absolutely, when you put all that together, this was not fulfilled in 1948. They're still under the curse because they've missed Messiah. They're still being trodden down by the Gentiles. They still don't have the boundaries of Israel that they will one day. Exactly right. So thank you. Yeah, Brian. I think it's important to reiterate your study that you did back in Matthew 24 with the second question being answered first because a lot of people will be at conferences or listen to other preachers where they're talking about things that are going on here in the world now and they and they look at those and they'll say look those are birth pains when in fact they may be a sign possibly but the birth pains actually have not started well said um exactly right one of the distinctives that we've kind of fallen into here at gospel of grace is that and i think it's biblical that's why we hold to this is that all of the signs when you're reading the all of a discourse are not things that precede the 70th week of Daniel or the last seven years, but rather all of the signs are within that time period. And therefore, that's why Jesus gives you all the signs. They're all within the 70th week of Daniel. When you get to Matthew 24, 36, he says, well, he answers the question, when will these things be? And he says eight different ways no one knows. No one knows the day or the hour. So you can't know when the 70th week breaks forth. So yes, all the signs are actually within the 70th week of Daniel. Yep. Very good point. Okay, and then I don't know if anybody's having, you know, I'm trying to keep all of these things on a timeline like you yeah. do, you know, your little timeline Yeah, example. the 70, exactly. So yeah. basically we're having these four eras, if you will. We're the now, which is the church age, and then we have the seven years, yep. the tribulation, then we have the thousand years, the millennium, yeah. and then eternity. Amen. So we are like now in the pregnant stage. The tribulation is the Odin, the birth. Exactly. And what it gives birth to then is the millennium. Exactly. And then we have eternity. Amen. Exactly. And that's what's so beautiful. You got it, Luann. Very good. That's, I wish I would have said it. Do you want to come up here and just take over? Just, <laughs> no, it's very good. Yeah. Yeah, exactly how you get free coffee, right? <laughs> Um, thank you. That's exactly right. Well said. Very, very succinct. Did everyone hear that? That's exactly what I'm trying to say. I don't know if I've ever said it that clearly. Thank you. What's birth is the messianic age. And that's what's so beautiful is once you and I are raptured, which happens prior to the 70th week, we're forever secure. We're always just with Christ. And so we never have to fret anymore. Yeah, Bob. Could you explain to us um, Matthew 24, 3... Yeah. And I know I was always confused for years yeah. about this because I thought the questions were answered in the same order they were asked. Yeah. And I think there's a chiasm going on. There is. Absolutely. And see, we've been talking about that a lot. Chiasm comes from a Greek letter. It looks like our X. But I'll show them. This way, this way, this way. Yeah. And so... When I understood this, it totally turned Matthew 24 into something that made sense to me. Yeah, absolutely. Before it didn't, because it seemed like all of the stuff about 
you don't know when, was just sort of dangling out there. Exactly, yeah. This is what we discovered. There's a chiasm. Matthew loves chiasms. Now, chiasm, you'll see what that is here in just a moment. It's a structure that the writers use to organize their thoughts. What's interesting is when the question is asked by the disciples in both Matthew and Mark's account, where are they? Well, they're on the Mount of Olives. Now, the reason that's significant is because in their mind, right away comes Zechariah chapters 12 through 14. Because they know when Messiah comes, he's coming to the where? The Mount of Olives. And so as Jesus starts to talk about the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple specifically, they're thinking of that last battle in Zechariah 12 through 14. So notice their question is really twofold. In Matthew 24, 3, they ask him two things. Notice it says, they say, tell us when will these things be? So the question is when. When will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and the close of the age? And those are really two that are lumped together in one question. So the, sec- the second question is, what will be the sign? Okay. Hope everyone can read my bad writing. Now you know why I don't do this more often. Okay, so those are the questions. So what Bob's pointing out is this is the chiasm. The first question the disciples ask is, when will these things be? What will be the sign? And what you're going to find out is the when question, Jesus answers last. He begins by asking, what are the signs? And all of these signs then are within the 70th week. So think of this as the 70th week. All of the signs he's giving you are within here. Okay, does everyone see that? Okay, so he's talking about the signs. He's asking what will be the signs. All of them are within the 70th week. Well, then in Matthew 24, 36, he switches to answer the when question. When will this 70th week be? And he says... No one knows. And he says it, I think, eight or nine different ways. It's like a thief in the night. Does a thief give you warning? No. It's like the days of Noah. Did anyone have, was anyone tipped off in Noah's day other than the preaching of Noah? No, they had no idea. They were eating, drinking, given in marriage, and all of a sudden, sudden destruction came upon them. It's like the master who's away from his house. And, he, and, the, and the people in the house don't know when he's coming back. Jesus gives you example after example after example you can't know. So this is how we can have signs on the one hand and yet imminency on the other. The signs are all within the 70th week, but when does that 70th week come? Now he answers that question. When does this whole unit come? No one knows. And that's, and by the way, hold on one sec, Bill. This 70th week is synonymous with the parousia. So when it talks about the parousia, it's talking about that 70th week. Okay? And, and we've proven that elsewhere. So, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, so we can't say, I'm sorry. So we can't say for sure that the 70th week will start right after the rapture then. Is that correct? I, I do believe it does. Um, all, I, yeah. Yeah, I, and I know, I, I think we've talked about this before. Tommy Ice has a different yeah. view on that. He said it could be a week, a month, six months down the road yeah. before it starts. So. Yeah, and again, I would say that that's fairly immediate. Here, here's the point is, you look at the example even from Lot, Lots removed and the destruction comes. Uh, Noah and his family are removed, the destruction comes. So um, whether it's a day or a week or whatever, it's, just, it's, it's basically immediate. Sure. There's the removal of the church, the people of God, and then the destruction comes. 
And that's the way, in fact, Jesus uses the illustration of Lot with Sodom and Gomorrah and Noah for that very purpose. Because the, the precedent is set. In fact, Peter uses the same thing in Second Peter 3. The precedent is that the people of God are removed, then the destruction comes. Yep. A very good question, yeah. So, okay, I'm sorry, I'm getting bogged down, but is, is that clear? That's a chiasm. Does everyone see that? Okay, very cool. Well, sorry, my handwriting. Now you know why I don't do this more often. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> I know. It'd be much better penmanship, yeah. <laughs> okay. All right, so let's keep moving on then. That's the labor pains motif. Now, notice just one thing I want to recap is you have labor pains for the first advent, you have labor pains for the second advent. Okay, and then what's birth is the messianic age, as Luann pointed out. Okay, so now we're going to see that Satan is going to try to kill the seed. If Israel is pregnant with the seed, Satan's going to want to wipe the seed out. We see this in Revelation 12, 3 through 4. It says, Then another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems, and his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven, and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. Okay, now, as everyone see here in the beginning of verse 3, it says, another sign. So again, this tips us off that it's not a literal dragon, but it is a symbol that represents something greater. Okay, and John tips us off. In fact, when we get to Revelation 12, 9, he just specifically tells you, Oh, by the way, the dragon is Satan. In fact, let me just cite it. He says, And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. So we're not left hanging. John tells us who the red dragon is. Now, one thing I want to do is I want to unpack this idea of the dragon because it's very, very rich in the Old Testament. There's three terms that I want you to consider. The dragon... Rahab, just as it sounds, R-A-H-A-B, and the serpent. Those three terms are often used synonymously in the Old Testament. What's very interesting is the dragon is often equated to Rahab. Rahab in Hebrew, Rahav, means to be arrogant or to be prideful. Well, that attitude is really linked to the serpent who tried to usurp God and become God. In fact, remember the serpent tries to tempt Adam and Eve you'll be like God. That's the arrogance of Satan that has to be thrown down. That's what Babylon's about. See, Babylon is man trying to save themselves. What's the Marxist left teach now? We're going to save ourselves. It's a utopian idea, isn't it? They're just building Babylon. That's what they're contributing to do. Okay, so the battles between two cities, the battle of, between the city of Babylon and the city of Jerusalem... Satan wants to bring about Babylon, and the dragon is behind it. That's Satan. Rahab is the arrogance and the serpent. All of that's tied together. So let me show you where this, we see this in the Bible. Turn your Bibles to Job chapter 26, verses 12 through 13. Again, Job 26, 12 through 13. Job talks about this language, and he's very familiar, obviously, with the host of heaven and the sons of God. And a lot of this ties into the Nephilim and all of those ideas that we were talking about when it came to the divine council. Okay, so all of this is tied into this. Job 26, verses 12 through 13, it says, He quieted the sea with his power, talking about Yahweh, 
and by his understanding he shattered Rahab. By his breath the heavens are cleared, his hand has pierced the fleeing serpent. Now notice the connection between Rahab and the fleeing serpent. What's very interesting is this idea of Rahav, this idea of being arrogant, is tied to the serpent. Well, later on, when you start reading the Old Testament, Egypt is linked to Rahab. Now, why would Egypt be linked to Rahab? Because Satan is using Egypt to try to crush God's seed. And that is the most arrogant thing that you could ever do, is to stand against God and his promises. And so then what you see, for instance, in the book of Isaiah is that Egypt is Rahab. Egypt is the dragon, and God is going to destroy it, not because Egypt is Satan, but because it's being incited by Satan. And by the way, this shouldn't be a surprise to us. Didn't Paul say that our battle is not with flesh and blood, but with what? Powers and principalities and rulers? Yeah, it's with the angelic realm, right? So turn your Bibles to Isaiah 51.9. Isaiah 51.9. I'll grab a drink here as you're turning. Isaiah 51.9. Very interesting passage. This is part of the suffering servant narrative in that section of Isaiah. And what's interesting is the arm of Yahweh starts to be filled out where you start seeing, you know what, this is the Messiah. So who is the arm of Yahweh? It's really the Messiah. It's, it's the Lord. It's Christ. It's the second person, the Trinity. Notice what it says, Isaiah 51, 9. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of Yahweh. Awake as in the days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab into, in pieces? Now stop there. Who's Rahab? Egypt. So here Isaiah is recounting what God did to Egypt. And notice he says right after that, appositionally, he says, who pierced the dragon? So notice Rahab is the dragon. Now, why does he say that? Because who is inciting Egypt to destroy God's people? Satan is. So ultimately, Rahab, which is Egypt, is being incited by the dragon, the serpent, etc. Okay? Does everyone see that connection? Now, turn your Bibles back to Isaiah 30, verse 7. I want to just prove to you that Egypt is, in fact, Rahab. Again, Isaiah 30, verse 7. You'll see here that clearly Egypt is linked to Rahab. Isaiah 30, verse 7, it says, Even Egypt, whose help is vain and empty, therefore I have called her Rahab, who has been exterminated. Okay, so notice here Egypt's being linked right to Rahab. Now, what's the issue in Isaiah 30 is this. God is angry with his people because time and time again, instead of them trusting in him, they trust in allegiances with foreign governments. When Judah is being threatened by Samaria and Syria, Judah makes a covenant with Assyria. Now, how did that go for him? Not so well. Remember, Sennacherib comes down and almost destroys Jerusalem. God intervenes, you know, by his grace. Um, what else happens? Well, Israel, Judah, trusts in Babylon. Remember that? They made an agreement with them. Well, what happens? Well, they're sacked by Babylon. In fact, 
They also made an agreement with Egypt to protect them. So they keep trusting in all these nations. And what God is saying is, don't trust in them, trust in me. But here, clearly, Egypt is not to be trusted in. They're the ones who are exterminated. Why not trust in Yahweh who exterminated Rahab, that is Egypt, rather than trusting in Egypt? So again, you see that who is behind the nations that try to wipe out Israel? Rahab, the serpent, who is the dragon? Those three terms is what I want you to see. Now, turn your Bible again to Isaiah 26, verses 17 through 21. I know we're kind of going backwards here, but there's a method behind the madness. Isaiah 26, verses 17 through 21. You're going to love this passage. In Isaiah 26, 17 through 21, what you have is New Testament eschatology. It's all laid out for you. The same thing that the New Testament teaches in order is laid out right before us. Notice again, it begins, it's talking about the future day of the Lord. Isaiah 26, 17 through 21, it says, As the pregnant woman approaches the time to give birth, she writhes and cries out in her labor pains. Let's stop there. Oh my goodness, labor pains? What does that have to do with? It has to do either with the first advent or the second advent. Right? Now notice, it says, thus, where we were before you, O Yahweh, we were pregnant. This, these are the Israelites. We writhed in labor. We gave birth as it seems only to the wind. We could not accomplish deliverance for the earth, nor were inhabitants of the world born. Stop there. Israel couldn't do it. And this is why Messiah, the ultimate Israel, the ultimate son had to come and do for the world what Israel failed to do. And right after this bad news, it seems all is lost. Israel, God's chosen servant, couldn't bring salvation. Notice the good news. In fact, some scholars think that this is out of place because the very next verse, you see good news. But that's not out of place in Isaiah. Isaiah routinely gives you bad news, bad news, bad news. The very next verse, by the way, here's some really good news. And he does that over and over to shock the reader, to show the distinction between human inability in the ability and the power of God. So notice in verse 19, this is where it gets so exciting. He says, your dead will live. Their corpses will rise. You who lie in the dust, awake and a shout for joy, for your dew is as the dew of the dawn. By the way, the dew there is significant because it's what gave life to Israel in the wilderness. Okay, so the dew is as the dew of the dawn and the earth will give birth to what? The departed spirits. There's a clear reference to the resurrection. Now, right after the resurrection, notice what he mentions in verse 20. He says, come, my people, enter into your rooms. Now, the term there for rooms is kather, which has to do with the inner room, an inner sanctuary. So the resurrection happens and the people go to their rooms. Why? Well, he says, and close your doors behind you. Hide for a little while until indignation, za'am in the Hebrew, wrath, until wrath runs its course. Verse 21, he says, For behold, Yahweh is about to come out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the whole earth for their iniquity, and the earth will reveal her bloodshed and will no longer cover her slain. So notice there's going to be a resurrection. The people of God are brought to their inner room where they're hidden away prior to God's wrath being poured out. Hmm, that sounds much like the pre-tribulation rapture, doesn't it? That people are removed just like Lot was removed prior to the destruction of Gomorrah, just like Noah and his family removed prior to the coming flood. 
the people of God before the coming wrath are going to be removed, hidden in their rooms, while his indignation, his wrath is spread. And I'm sorry, Eric, hold on one second. I'm just going to put, it might answer your question, I don't know, but I'll put up the very next verse. I just want everyone to see this. Now, this is the very next verse. I wanted to put it up on the screen. Isaiah 27, 1, in that day, what does that refer to? The day of the Lord. In that day, Yahweh will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, with his fierce and great and mighty sword, even Leviathan, the twisted serpent, and he will kill what? The dragon who lives in the sea. Dragon, that's Satan. What's being stated here is that Satan is going to be put down at the end of it. That's what we're reading about here in Revelation chapter 12. That's what we're reading about in the book of Revelation, that in the 70th week of Daniel, God is going to throw down the serpent, that is the, the dragon, Satan, once and for all. So who is behind the nations that try to kill the Messiah and God's seed? It's Satan. It's the dragon. But God is going to win. He's going to crush the dragon. Okay, I'm sorry, Eric, go ahead. I don't want to go off too far on a tangent, but, yeah. you know, in the... Uh, in the in the section here, uh, come my people, enter into your rooms. That's uh, Isaiah um, twenty six verse twenty, which we just read. Yeah, I think of John fourteen. You know, in my house there are many rooms, and exactly that's all right. the pre tribulational rapture, where you understand the Jewish wedding exactly. traditions. And then also, I had a note in my Bible too, um, and this is where it's more of a question. Yeah, I wrote down the word Petra. In other words, during the the, the, the heat, the height of the tribulation that uh, some have said that the Jewish people will be led to Petra, you know, where they will be protected and kept safe. So it's almost like in that verse 20 that there's kind of two things going on that they're talking about. I don't know if that's biblically accurate or, or if that makes sense or not. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I would say more of the former than the latter. I think you're right with the John 14 um, we'll talk about the being nourished in the wilderness. And remember, that happened during the time of Antiochus Epiphanes IV and also during the Roman. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about that. But let's stay with because I think you hit an exquisite point on John 14, that Jesus promised that he's going to prepare a place for us and that in his Father's house there are many rooms. I think that's ex- ex- exactly what's being stated in Isaiah 26. So let's talk about that motif a little bit, the wedding analogy. Okay, let's do in a Hebrew wedding, what would happen is the man would desire a bride. And what he would do with the father is the father, the two fathers would settle on what's called the mohair, the bride price. And the bride price was often really extravagant. If you're going to purchase that bride, it's going to cost you a lot. In fact, it would more than likely cost the father of the groom a whole house. I mean, it'd be that expensive. So let's think about it for just a moment. If we're the bride of Christ, and we're referred to that as, what's the mohair, the bride price? It's an extravagant cost. It's the, the life of the son. Okay? So after the mohair would be set, there would be the arrangements made. So what would happen is the son would go back to the father's house and make arrangements to go get his bride. Okay, so after Jesus gives us salvation, he goes back to the Father's house and he promises, just as Eric's pointing out, I go to prepare a place for you and I'm going to come and bring you to myself so that where I am, notice there you may be also. Notice Jesus doesn't say, I'm coming back to be where you are. He's coming to bring us to be where he is and he's preparing a place for us. So just like the groom 
He's going to prepare a place in the Father's house. Now, the bride did not know when the groom would return. It was an imminent proposition, and so she had to be ready. That's the point of the parable of the virgins in Matthew 25. They don't know when. Okay, so they have to be ready, right? Now, what would the son do while he's building a place in his father's house and the wife, the bride, is kind of waiting and not really sure when's he going to come? He would send her gifts. Now, what does Jesus do? He sends his gifts through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the gift, the parakletos, the comforter. And according to Ephesians chapter 4, he gives us some as apostles, some as prophets, some as pastors, some as teachers, some as evangelists, so that the church is built up, the bride is built up. So all of these gifts are bestowed upon us by the Son through the Spirit so that the bride is reassured that one day, in fact, this marriage arrangement will happen. Okay, so then what happens is the son comes back. He brings the bride to himself and they celebrate the marriage for how many days? For seven days. Seven days, a whole week. And who was instrumental in this whole thing was the, the um, best man. What is John the Baptist? He calls himself the best man. He points himself to the groom. All of this is in, in, New, in the New Testament. It's all there. So the point is, after the seven years, they would have the seven weeks, I should say, or the seven days within the week, you would have the consummation and what would be called the, the marriage supper. Okay, so when do we have the marriage supper of the Lamb? Well, we read about that in Revelation 19 at the end of the, the 70th week of Daniel. Okay, and that's the consummation and you have now the bride connected forevermore to the groom. So you're exactly right. All of this is taught in the New Testament, and I think it's connecting into language in the Old Testament as well. It's very beautiful. So thank you for pointing that out. I'm sorry, a lot of this is coming off the top of my head, so it's been a while since I reviewed it, but that's the basic gist of it. So very well said. Sorry, I'm getting way off course here. I've only got 15 minutes to go, but we've got a lot to cover here. Notice here that this dragon then is Satan. We talked about that. He's the one who cites the nations. And he also has seven heads and ten horns. On his heads were seven diadems. Now, what are these ten horns and what are the seven diadems? I'm going to get into greater detail when we get into Revelation 17 because it will come up again. But very succinctly, these seven diadems represent kingdoms. And it's the successive kingdoms that went against Israel. It begins with Egypt, then you go to Assyria, Babylon, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, and then the seventh is going to be the beast kingdom. Now, what are the ten horns? Well, the ten horns are the ten nations that align themselves with this final kingdom of the beast. And so what John is showing us then is that this dragon, the Satan, uses means. He uses the nations to try to wipe out God's purposes, the seed. Does everyone see that? Okay, so now we're going to unpack that again in greater detail when we get to chapter 17, but that's what that's representing. Now, notice it also says that a third of the stars from heaven were swept down. And I think clearly here we have a reference to Satan's angels, that when Satan falls, he brings a third of them with him. Now, how do we know that Satan has demonic beings with him well jesus himself says in matthew 25 in fact i have the quote matthew 25 41 the lake of fire was reserved for what the devil and his angels 
and unbelievers are going to go there. That's the threat that Jesus gives in Matthew 25. So clearly, I think the stars here that are thrown down are the angels that belong to Satan. And we know, if you turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 9, verse 1, that indeed stars are often used by John to depict angels. I'm going to show you that. Revelation 9, 1. This is at the fifth trumpet judgment. It says, Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth, and the key of the bottomless pit was given to him. So what's the star? It's certainly an angel, isn't it? And the angel had authority over the bottomless pit. So I think the third of the stars are certainly the angelic realm that fell with Satan that he incited to leave, to leave their proper abode and to rebel against God. Now, there's a passage I want to show you that talks more about this. It's Isaiah 14, verse 13. Please turn your Bibles to that. We'll just look at it real quickly. Isaiah 14, verse 13. Now, the reason I want you to look at this passage with me is I want you to understand the relationship between these angelic beings, again, that Satan is using, his demons, and the nations. Okay, now, why am I showing you this? Because, again, I want you to see that behind the nations of Babylon, Assyria, uh, whether it be the Medo-Persians, whatever nation it is, Babylon in the end, ultimately, who is behind it is Satan. And I want you to see evidence of that here. Notice Isaiah 14, 13. This is what's called a taunt against the king of Babylon. Now, let me set the stage. When we look at this taunt, I think it's better to understand it not as a taunt where the Israelites are jeering and making fun of the king of Babylon, but instead, the term mashal in Hebrew can be understood as a proverb. In fact, there's a very famous scholar, Jalik Matyer, who writes a commentary in Isaiah, and he says it this way. He says, quote, Mashal isn't about jeering, but it's about bringing to light the inner truth of the king, unquote. So what is Matyer saying? What Matyer is saying is that this is never really about the king of Babylon. It's about him, but ultimately there's something behind the king of Babylon. The reason why he's so arrogant, the reason he wants to crush the people of God, and what's behind it is Satan. I think that that's how we have to understand it. So as we read Isaiah 14, yes, it's about the king of Babylon, that's for sure. But it's ultimately about him who incites him as well, Satan. Notice what it says, Isaiah 14, 13. He says, but you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. And I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. Now stop there. Notice where it says that he wants to set his throne above the stars of God. I think the stars here has to do with God's angelic realm, his what we would call the divine council. Remember the paradigm that we've laid out? So this arrogant king of Babylon is so arrogant, he wants to elevate himself above his rightful place to rule. Here, God had given them this massive kingdom on earth. He ruled over all the nations, and that wasn't sufficient. And this is why I think ultimately Nebuchadnezzar's in mind, if you're going to take one king, because he went insane, and he forgot who ultimately ruled. Remember then he came to his senses? 
Okay, so ultimately he's trying to usurp. God gave him this position of authority on earth, but that's not sufficient. He wants to go into the unseen realm and take his position above all of the other angelic beings within God's divine counsel. Now, who else did that? Satan. Satan did that. So where is the king getting this attitude from? Uh, hate to sound like the church lady, but Satan? <laughs> you guys remember that on the Saturday Night Live? Sorry. I think it is Satan. Okay, Satan's doing it ultimately. Now, notice the other thing he says. He says, I will sit on the Mount of the Assembly in the recesses of the north. Recesses of the north is the term in Hebrew, zaphon. Not like you're on zaphon, but that's the term in Hebrew, zaphon. Okay, now zaphon is Mount Hermon. Where is Mount Hermon? This is where the Nephilim came down. The Nephilim come down at Mount Hermon. This is the threat to Israel. Their their threat is always from the north. When the enemy from the north comes, well, Mount Hermon is to the north. In fact, when you take a trip to Israel, there's a blue hue to the north because it's the snow-capped mountains of Mount Hermon. This is supposedly where Satan brings his false seed down, the Nephilim. So that's an attempt to destroy God's true seed. Satan has his seed, God his true seed. Now, let's fast forward to the Bible in the New Testament. Matthew 16, Bob and I are all excited about this. Matthew 16, remember when Jesus asked, well, who do you say that I am? It's at Caesarea Philippi. That's at the base of Mount Hermon. So here comes the time for the confession of the true seed, the true son, the Messiah. And Peter says, you are the Christ the Son of the living God. And what does Jesus say? Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for this was not revealed to you by flesh, but by my Father in heaven. And upon this rock, I'm going to build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I think we have a, a double entendre going. Peter becomes, Simon becomes, his name's Cephas, he becomes Peter, Petros, right, which means rock. So upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. But think about the big rock that's in the backdrop, Mount Hermon, and what Mount Hermon represents in the recesses of the north. It represents all that Satan is trying to do. And Jesus says, upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. And even the gates of Hades won't prevail against it. It's the ultimate in your face that God gives to Satan in the false seed right at Caesarea Philippi. And again, you can read about that in Matthew 16. So again, all of these things are connected that I want you to see. So who's ultimately behind the dragon, or excuse me, the nations? It's the dragon, it's Satan. Okay, he's the one who's inciting all of the nations to try to destroy God's people, the seed. So notice it says that Satan wants to devour her child. Does everyone see that? Let's do a little bit of history and then we'll end at this point. Let's look through history just for a moment. And just refresh ourselves on how Satan has tried to wipe out God's seed. Remember the one and the many? If you lose the many, you lose the one. If you don't have the one Messiah, he doesn't provide salvation for the many. Think about in Genesis 4.8, Cain murders Abel. And this is a direct attack on the lineage that was to bring about the Messiah. How do we know that? Because in Genesis 4.25, God brings about Seth which is a replacement for Abel who is murdered. And if you read the lineage in Luke 3.38, Messiah comes from the lineage of Seth. And so right away, God has to replace Abel, apparently from whom the Messiah would have come. 
but he ends up coming from Seth. So right away, I think we can see an attempt to wipe out God's seed incited by Satan. Think about the corruption of Seth's line. Here's the Nephilim in Genesis 6. Right away, God interjects his seed. He's trying to wipe out God's seed. And this is why you have the inhabitants of Canaan. They're demanded to be wiped out by God. Why? Because he just doesn't like people from Canaan? No, because they're the Nephilim. And they engage in all of the satanic activities that they're incited to do. Uh, Genesis 12 and Genesis 20, you see attempted rapes of Sarah. Now, as I say attempted rapes, what's interesting is both, remember Abimelech? (laughs) I can say it better in Hebrew. It's Avi Melech. It's father king. Melech is king. Avi is father. But Abba, how do you say it in English? Abimelech, thank you. (laughs) Thank you. I'm glad you're here, Dana. Abimelech. Remember, Abimelech doesn't want to hurt or rape uh, Abraham's wife, Sarah. In fact, Abraham ends up lying because he thinks that his wife is so beautiful. Abimelech is certainly going to take her and then kill him. So he pretends to be uh, her brother, right? Well, he lies. But Satan is using all that to try to destroy the seed, the lineage of the messianic promise. We also see the same thing in Genesis 20 where Pharaoh does the same thing, right? Pharaoh tries to... Uh, have relations with Sarah, although he's not trying. He doesn't know. He thinks that she's a free woman, but Abraham was lying. Uh, We see the same thing happening to Rebekah. Again, Abimelech uh, from the Philistines. He doesn't want to do anything wrong, but Satan is trying to incite him to have relations with Rebekah and destroyed the seed line. Uh, Genesis 27, you have enmity between Jacob and Esau. In fact, in Genesis 27, 42, what does Esau want to do? He wants to kill Jacob. He wants to murder him, just like Cain murdered Abel. Well, what would happen if you lose Jacob? You lose Israel. If you lose Israel, who do you lose? The Messiah. Exactly. We see the plot against Joseph. Why is that an attack on the seed promise? Joseph is used by God to preserve Israel during the famine in Egypt. If you lose Joseph, you could potentially lose that relief valve, as it were. But what is God, what Satan means for evil, God meant for good. You have famine in the land in Genesis 42. God is trying to protect his people. Satan's trying to wipe them out. He brings them down to Egypt. You have in Exodus, remember the people are in Egypt now, Exodus chapters 1 through 12, there's the Egyptian plot against Israel. Egypt tries to wipe out Israel, God's firstborn. God does a reversal and he wipes out the Egyptian firstborn and he takes Israel out. You see, in 1 Samuel 18, the attempted murders against David. If you lose David, you don't have the lineage of the Messiah. You get to 2 Chronicles 22.10. There's a wicked woman, Athaliah. She murders all of the royal seed. There was a king named Ahaziah, and Jehu, the king of Israel, killed him. Well, Athaliah was the mother of Ahaziah, and she puts to death every single descendant of Judah that could be a partaker of the throne except one, Joash. He's hidden away. The messianic lineage boils down to one, and God was faithful to preserve Joash so you don't lose the messianic seed promise. What I'm wanting you to see is time and time again, Satan's trying to attack the seed, the many, so you don't get the one, to wipe out the lineage. Uh, Esther, chapters 3 through 9, Haman, remember Haman's wicked plot against Mordecai and the Jews. And there's a reversal that happens at a feast. Bob writes about that at a mishta. At a feast, there's a reversal. Okay, the enemies of God 
the Haman is put to death, Mordecai is saved. What happens in the book of Revelation? There's a great feast in Revelation 19. The enemies of God are feasted upon by the beasts of the earth and the beasts of the air. And you and I go to feast with Christ. It's a reversal. All those who had picked on God's people, they're going to be feasted upon while you and I go feast. This all happens at a Mishnah. So here in Esther, the Jews could have been wiped out again, but God was faithful. Matthew 2, Herod tries to murder all of the children in Bethlehem to do what? To wipe out God's seed. If you lose Jesus, you obviously lose the Messiah. Then the seed promise is done. In fact, this is what's so shocking. Hosea 11.1, 1, the prophet said, When Israel was a youth, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Now, what is Hosea saying there? God calls Israel his son. And because Egypt is incited by Satan, they want to wipe out what? The son. So if you lose Israel in Egypt, you lose the son. You lose Israel and you lose the Messiah. So this is why Matthew cites it in Matthew 2.15. Remember, Herod wants to murder the children in Bethlehem. And then Joseph takes Jesus and Mary down to Egypt. And it says he remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Here's Hosea 11.1. 1. Out of Egypt I called my son. Now, what is so stunning here in Matthew 2.15 is Matthew is quoting Hosea 11.1 1, while Jesus is going into Egypt. Well, why doesn't he just wait until he comes back out of Egypt and then quote it? Are you with me? Because he does. He talks about just verses later, Jesus comes out of Egypt. You'd think he'd cite it then. Out of Egypt, I called my son. What it points to is that Matthew's focus isn't whether you're going into Egypt or out of Egypt. The focus is on the son. That in both cases, God was faithful during the time of Egypt when they were trying to kill Israel and the time of Jesus when Herod's trying to kill the Messiah. God was faithful to the son. And that's what we're to see, that God will protect the seed. And so in Revelation chapter 12, what John wants us to understand is this battle, that Satan is always trying to attack the seed. Why did the nations hate Israel so much? This little nation that's smaller than, what, the size of New Jersey or Minnesota? It's just tiny. And the whole world blames them for everything. You know, somebody's got, uh, there's a war between two other nations. It's Israel's fault. Uh, you know, there's bad uh, unemployment numbers in France. It's the Jews. It's Israel. They're always being blamed. Why? Satan wants to wipe out the seed. They're the canary in the coal mine, my friends. But what God is showing us in Revelation 12, as we're going to proceed, is that he's going to be faithful because he's faithful to all of his promises. You and I were grafted into the promises given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God wants us to know that he will be faithful to preserve them, just as he said. Okay, that's what this is all about. It's a battle to protect the seed. So with that, we have much more to get into. We'll continue next time into part two. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for being a God who is faithful to protect the seed against Satan and all of the adversaries, Lord. And we thank you that you're powerful to save, that because you are this God who is so powerful to cut down Rahab and to pierce the great dragon, that we can trust you with everything in life, our health, our wealth, our families, 
our relationships, Lord. We can trust you in all matters, Heavenly Father. And I pray for any brothers and sisters here who are hurting, that this would be a comfort to them to know that you are on the throne and that not one single molecule happens randomly in the universe without you controlling it, without you knowing about it and being Lord over it. We thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.